I think the important thing is that day one really needs to be a celebration. Like you really have that day to make a first impression on your incoming team member and to give them the confidence that they've made the right choice and they're set up for success. So as a team leader, make sure you're there in advance of time to greet that person and then celebrate the occasion. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers and leaders. With thanks to our partner Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking and strategies to elevate your results. To get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast, visit joineliteagent.com. And for more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier on your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Hey, hey everyone, it's Sam here. It's safe to say that property management is a sector doing it a bit tough at the moment. Rising rents and record low vacancy rates have been getting a lot of airplay recently. And of course, at the centre of all of this stuck in the middle between the landlord and the tenant are property managers. Burnout has been common in the industry and retention of quality PMs has been an issue. And here to unpack all of this today and suggest some ways forward positively is well-known PM, industry thought leader and Colmeo Executive Manager, Brock Fisher. So Brock, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Sam, for having me. Great to be here. It's nice to have you here. I think you're a bit of a semi-regular on the show. And I mean, last time we delved very deep into the rental crisis. Have you seen any improvements or anything like that? Or are we still sort of where we were back then? Look, I personally haven't seen any perceptible change. The challenges have only continued to deepen. I definitely don't think, unfortunately, that we've bottomed it out yet because... As so many people have mentioned in recent articles and discussions, you know, there's an underlying supply problem which drives all of this challenge and just not enough is being done to turn that around. So without a dramatically huge increase in supply, things are going to continue to get tighter and worse before they'll get better. Yeah. So you've recently penned a couple of quite thought-provoking articles on property management value versus fees, retention cycles, and whether or not agencies can earn more and retain more PMs if they're better trained on the way in or once they're in the job. So we're going to expand a little bit on that today and also take a look at why a thorough onboarding process for PMs is important and how perhaps we can make that happen. But first of all, let's set the scene a little bit. Can you just explain what you mean when you say that the PM industry is a bit value challenged? Yeah, so I guess it's been my observation, not only in the role that I'm in now, but the last decade or so that I've spent in property management businesses and teams, that there's a bit of a perception of value challenge with owners who are ultimately the person who pays the fees for the services that we provide. So there's a whole range of factors around that. But I think the basic challenge from a business point of view is that everything is more expensive now. There's a lot more aspects and complexity to the property management role full stop, which means we're kind of doing more. We need to know more. We need to manage more things. Property management churn with team members continues to be an ever-present challenge. And at the same time, there's kind of downward pressure on fees. So every other day when you get into social media forums, there's generally some sort of commentary around you know, the business down the road that has a fee-free period or is offering 2% or any of those types of things. So at the same time, that business costs are escalating pretty rapidly. There's also the downward pressure on fees, fees being the revenue generated for the business, which basically puts people in the challenge of trying to do more with less. So 
there's a lot of discussion in the industry about why we can't just basically unify and start charging customers more for what we do. But there's a whole load of complexities around why that's a challenge. And I think when you take a look at the general standard of service that we're serving up on an ongoing basis, trying to manage the property manager churn issue in the industry, it's one that we need to solve if we want to start to elevate the perception of value that an owner has in the services we provide because you can do marvelous things with a stable team. But if you don't have a stable team and you're in this ever-present merry-go-round of property manager churn and a new property manager every couple of months, it doesn't matter what the industry does in terms of going to people and saying, hey, our fee used to be this and now it's this because their experience isn't matching what we're asking. So yeah, that's kind of what's motivated me to pen some of my recent pieces, not only around educational standards and barriers to entry, but also successfully onboarding that person into the way you work and your company culture and values and celebrating day one. But you know, there's another portion to that as well outside of both of those things. And that is literally what you're serving up to that person on day one. They're getting a portfolio that's in turmoil and are you just going to continue to perpetuate that churn by doing so? Yeah. So I'm going to dig into this concept of value because it's actually something we're going to be dealing with at Elite Retreat, the concept of added value, because I can't tell you, even in all the years we've been doing Transform, and I mean, the secrets out, we'll be doing around a Transform again in May this year. But in all those years, it is very hard for people to articulate their value. So I'm actually getting this guy in Elite Retreat to actually define value in five different ways. His name's Mark Carter. I don't know if you've heard of him, but it's almost like a hashtag in the industry, you know, like we add more value than our competitors. Would you agree with that? But then it's just not defined well. I think the problem stems from the words and the actions not matching. So it doesn't matter what you say to an owner. If they come on board and two weeks later, you're not delivering something that matches what you've said, then you have a problem right there. So it's the mismatch of words and experience that I think is challenged. So I think what the industry needs to be focused on is making sure that the promises that are made when you go out and talk to owners about the service you deliver matches the actual experience they have once they come on board. And I think most owners have a relatively straightforward understanding of what value they would get out of using a property manager. But because of the challenges that come with staff churn and vacant portfolios and all of those things, owners can get into this position of starting to feel like they're making the decisions and they're doing the management and they're re-educating every new person that is dealing with them as to how they like things done. And that's where the perception of value really starts to erode because that's when they start to go, well, I'm making more of the decisions around the management of my property than you are. So effectively, why am I paying you? Yeah, interesting. Well, unemployment has been at record lows in Australia for a while. And I think you and I talked about this briefly last time, and particularly the idea of property managers having more training on the way in. So does higher qualifications equal better results? What are your thoughts on that? Should we train our PMs better, more on the way, or once they're in the job? I think the key things are learned once you're actually on the job. So in the scenario like we have at the moment where people are leaving the industry and we're really struggling to fill those places, there's a lot of risk in increasing the barriers to entry to do that. So if we make it harder for people to become a property manager initially before they've even gotten in the door, then they might reconsider before they've even had that opportunity to have day one. So if we are moving towards a scenario where we're requiring people to invest a lot more of their time up front and perhaps their own money to get additional qualification, 
then people start to consider whether that's kind of right for them. And I think the other element to this whole process is our formal qualifications actually helping you succeed in the role. And I know my view on this is pretty clear and I've spoken to a lot of people who feel similarly that what you learn when you do your traditional real estate course, whether that's a certificate of registration or a full license course, is so wide of the everyday experience of doing the role that just making more of that learning is not going to have any impact at all, I don't think, on the service delivery once people get in there. So it's good to have a deep technical understanding of the space, but there's so much more to doing the role successfully that you learn once you're in the door. So I certainly am a pretty active advocate of making sure that continual professional development once you start is a key platform and not just making it harder for people to initially become a property manager because the job is hard enough as it is. We need more people coming in who want to give it a go. Let's get them in the door and let's show them how to be great. Yeah. I have wondered when the new legislation was brought in, particularly in New South Wales, about needing to be at least a class two agent, I think, or aiming towards your class two agent would actually discourage some people from coming into the industry, particularly in property management, because if the large part you're dealing with women who might have families, who might be looking for part-time work, who might be really excellent at managing people and things like that. Do you think that that has impacted in any way? Yeah, when I first saw the New South Wales plan, I was quite a fan of it because it didn't change what you needed to do to begin. But over a period of time, I think five years, you were continually upskilling through that period to the point where you became a fully licensed agent. So I think what no one has been able to determine really so far is that five-year journey of you becoming a fully licensed agent. Is it the actual formal training that you're doing through that period that is influencing the impact of the service you're delivering or is it what you're actually learning on the job through that period of time and from the people that work around you and from the situations you encounter. So it's going to be quite an interesting scenario to try and dissect whether the actual formal qualifications are the thing that's having the impact there or the actual period of time that people have spent doing the job, which is responsible for the service delivery improvement. Yeah. I mean, look, one of the things Again, I'm going to play devil's advocate here just because it is something that probably should be raised a little bit, but I go into my hairdressers fairly regularly, I might add, and I don't look around and see any of their certificates on the walls. I just know that they're trained to do the job. And this is me, and I suppose obviously different customers expect different things, and that's part of the value equation we were talking about earlier. I like my hairdresser because she makes me coffee usually in the middle of the day and I'm normally answering emails, but she doesn't talk too much because she knows I'm working. If it's after lunch, she'll offer me bubbles. Like It's almost like that meeting the customer where they want to be met. So should it be the same with PM? Yeah, I think ultimately your value as a property manager is entirely determined by the perception of the customer and whether or not you're serving up what they actually want. So whether you are a bachelor qualified person or a diploma qualified person or you have no qualifications at all, if you're knocking it out of the park, the formal qualifications kind of have no consequence. So I think it's been a requirement in Queensland, just kind of test my memory. Let's go with since 2015, I think, where people have had to have a copy of their certificate on them at all times in case someone asked them. I can't think of a single person that's ever been asked to produce a copy of that by a customer. I think the only time that they ever get asked is if they're trading and trying to do some sort of spot check, setting up an example and just testing if people are complying with that obligation. Because the reality is 
the paperwork that you have behind you doesn't matter to the customer. It's the service and the experience and your expertise at doing what they engage you to do. Yeah. I mean, ironically, like I've often heard the hairdresser syndrome sort of mentioned in the same breath as property managers too, because people do get attached to a particular property manager as well, which sort of pounds this problem of property managers leaving. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's symptomatic of the fact that that person has gelled with the customer because they kind of get them like they're aligned. And I referenced earlier the whole re-education quandary, and I've heard that so many times from owners over the years, having worked in large-scale businesses around the fact that Every time someone new comes in, they feel like they need to go through the process of molding that person into the property manager they need. And at some point, the continual effort requirement for the owner to do that is what prompts them to just pick up their bags and go and try someone else. Yeah. So how can agencies sort of provide better training? I mean, it's often that you learn from the best by shattering people or by doing, but if we're in a situation where we're taking in people who aren't PM qualified... What are the best ways? Is it sort of about personal development days, shadowing other PMs? What have you found in your experience is the best way to get someone up to speed? I think it's a little bit of divide the responsibility. So I don't think it's any single person's responsibility in the business to get someone new in and onboard them and make them into a superstar. You know, it really comes from the combined efforts of everyone and sort of crowdsourcing that whole onboarding piece and the learning is a good way to not only solve the challenge, but also have buy-in from your team so that it's everyone's kind of responsibility. So too often, I think people just look to a particular leader to go, all right, well, we've got a vacancy and someone's coming in. And so it's that person's responsibility to make sure that goes well. It's actually everyone's responsibility. It's the same as rent roll growth. I always look at rent roll growth as being everyone's responsibility in a business, regardless of what your title is. It's in everyone's best interest when you have a new team member coming on for that team member to work out. So everyone has an interest in and should have an interest in making sure that that's as successful as possible. But I think the number one issue is that we're not prepared to spend the time upfront to make sure that's a success. So we're continually in this scenario of actually taking way more time and way more costs later after that person is burnt and they've left again and you've got another vacant portfolio to continue to solve that problem. Whereas if we had more of a defined plan upfront and spend some time and effort and even resourcing up front to make sure that that person is most likely to succeed. And that's way better than kind of solving the problem later at much higher cost and much higher stress levels. So we know that portfolio vacancies are one of the biggest drivers of management losses. So if you've got an empty portfolio and you lose 10 managements out of it, the asset value there might be forty or $50,000 of asset value. So if you've got to spend very small proportion of that upfront in extra resourcing and bringing in people to make sure that you're handing that person a well-sorted portfolio with the best chance of success, then yes, there is a little bit of upfront investment, but it just saves you so much asset and business costs down the track. Yeah. So let's talk about this a bit because I'm sure that this is a real challenge out there in the industry. We all know it. And there are a lot of leaders out there who sort of look to people like you for information and advice and things like that because you've been through so many onboardings and run some really big rent rolls and things like that. So let's just run a bit of a scenario. I'm a PM. I'm fresh-faced, got my suit on, (laughs) and I'm turning up to work on day one. If in an ideal world, what does your day look like as my leader and what does my day look like? Yeah, I think the important thing is that day one really needs to be a celebration. Like you really have that day to make a first impression on your incoming team member and to give them the confidence that they've made the right choice and they're set up for success. So 
I have the view that there's there's simple things and there's more detailed things that you can do. I think the very first step is making sure that you're actually there when your team member arrives because there's nothing more awkward for them than rocking up at the door and not knowing anyone and kind of having to awkwardly sit in reception. So as a team leader, make sure you're there in advance of time to greet that person and then celebrate the occasion so that ideally you've got the whole team there. If you've got an opportunity to know in advance what that person's favorite tea or coffee or chai latte is, you know, have one of those ready, have some balloons, like really celebrate the moment, make sure that person feels welcome. At a really more practical and operational level, set that person up for success from day one and create the right impression of your business as well by just making sure everything works. Like there's nothing more frustrating for a team member to rock up and their computer doesn't work and they can't log in and they don't have their passwords to actually get set up. And what is that? image creating of you as a business if that's your incoming team member's first day experience. So, you know, there's so many things you can do, which I've kind of expanded upon, I think, in my recent EA column. And I thank you for that opportunity. But I think if I could distill it into a couple of simple things, make day one a celebration, make sure everything works. If you've got those two things nailed on day one, then you're setting off on the right trajectory. Yeah. Okay. So I'm impressed that you know that I'm a weak almond latte. (laughs) And, you know, I've got my computer, I've gone home after day one, I've said to the partner, this place, he says, how's your first day? And I go, well, I love my job. The people are really nice. They even bought me a week almond latte. We had lunch, computers all set up, blah, blah, blah. All right, what does the rest of the week look like? Yeah, so I think it's important to clearly define within your existing team whose responsibility it is to show your new team member what various elements of what you do. Now, there's a couple of different aspects to it. There is technical way of working, like this is how we do things around here, but there's also the cultural pieces as well. How we celebrate success, this is what we do as a team. You know, on Friday, we always get together and have lunch. It's really important as a piece of our identity as a business. I think it's also important to organize a meeting in that first week the founder of the business. So if it's not the founder that has done the actual hiring, I think it's a good opportunity, firstly, to introduce them and make sure they're kind of an approachable person and to say hi and do all that type of stuff. But more importantly, they have to have the opportunity to tell their story. Like, why are we in business? Why did I do this? What's been my journey to now? Why is this such an important thing to me? Why am I passionate about what we do? So buying into not only the team mentality, but the overarching focus and the drivers of the business by having chat to your, your founder or principal, I think is a key part of that first week as well. And the focus then is on not only addressing, and I think this is kind of an extension of my point earlier about the qualifications you do to get your certificate aren't necessarily the ones that help you on the job. So it's understanding what the gaps are in the technical things that that person has already been through, like what skills and knowledge you need to impart on them from that technical sense. But I think the journey around interpersonal skills and the soft people skills, that's kind of something that starts day one, finishes never, basically, because you can never learn too much about that space. So How are you supporting your team members to better understand concepts like emotional intelligence and EQ, conflict resolution, de-escalation of scenarios, empathetic communication, but also self-management? So it's a high-pressure, high-stress job. Are you making sure that they have the appropriate skills and support they need to be able to turn off and decompress and reset and teaching those skills around resilience so that they can come back on day two and day three and hopefully day 10,000 and continue to go, go, go? Yeah. So as a leader, let's just say, obviously, there is a process of ramping up and allowing, you know, I would call it taking the training wheels off. So you have a new person, you celebrate them the first day, 
they get to know the culture and the values and the purpose of the business and how the business wants to make an impact, all of that sort of stuff. Then I guess, you know, like you've got to have some kind of systemization around checking in with that person on a regular basis. How often would you check in with a new employee just to find out how they were going? You know, would it be a one-to-one kind of thing or something different? How would you approach that? Yeah, I think all leaders should be having one-to-ones with their team members. The frequency is the thing that can vary. So I think a month is too far apart. I think a week in some instances can be too frequent. But I think for a new team member incoming, weekly is the right frequency. And I think where people invariably land is that for a like a structured one-to-one, about fortnightly frequency is probably about right. But that doesn't mean there's not just day-to-day interactions of that nature. So I think one of the best things a, a leader or a manager can do is actually be sitting on the floor with the rest of their team. So you know, I think the days of sitting in your corner office and hoping that if someone has a problem, they'll come in and see you. I think the days of that type of management are far behind us. Like you need to be in there in the trenches with your team and kind of proactively listening for signs of stress and signs of the need to intervene and guide people as a manager. You know, for that incoming team member, I'd certainly, I'd want to be fairly close to them in a working context anyway, like being out on the floor, being among the team. And then I think certainly for the first month, probably two months, making sure that we're having a one-to-one catch-up and then settle into the normal operating cadence after that. Yeah. And finally, what are some of the questions that you'd ask your new person in your one-on-one catch-up? Yeah, so one-to-ones to me are kind of about understanding how that person's going, not just at work and in life, but how are they? Understanding if there's anything getting in their way of success, whether that is a particular situation, whether that's a challenge with a customer, whether there's a knowledge gap or something that needs to be filled for them. So talking about that type of stuff. And then is there any blockers right now that is stopping you from getting what you need to get done today, this week, this month, etc. So it's a reasonably straightforward format. I think once you check in on how the person's going as a person, because it's not all about work, you know, people have stuff going on outside of work and having that mentality where life is compartmentalized, where life is life and work is work. Like that's just not modern day management, I don't think. There's a great big mix of all of life factors that impact how people are showing up. So if there's stuff going on outside of the work environment that people need to discuss, I think it's important to be there for that as well. And then also part of a one-to-one would be the future looking stuff. So if you've sat down and you've worked through personal development plans or, you know, those sorts of things, how you're kind of tracking to those goals. But I think it's also important to have an accountability element because if you're not circling back to things that you've discussed in the past, then there's also kind of no point of setting goals in the first place. So a reflection element on what you've said, what the actions you've agreed on in your prior one-to-ones and making sure that that's been done is a really key part of that whole cadence as well. Yeah. And you would just do that by taking notes and then calling those notes back up when you next meet with the person and sort of having a look back and going, we're working on this, how is that going, et cetera, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I think the note challenge is a bit of an interesting one because I don't want a one-to-one feel too prescriptive, but also I need to be able to refer back to what's been discussed for a whole range of reasons. So whether you make notes at the time or whether you quickly make notes afterwards while it's fresh in your mind is entirely up to the individual. But I think if you're setting goals with the person you're having a one-to-one with, they should be writing those down. So they should actually be bringing those in so that you can reflect upon them because if you've had a discussion with them and you've agreed for them to do something and there's no record of that, then they will leave, get busy, forget, and 
that whole process will fall down. So part of setting goals with your team member is kind of getting them to arrive at what's an achievable thing so that they're agreeing that what they're telling you they can do is achievable. Otherwise, if you just say, hey, you should do this thing, it's giving them an opportunity to kind of dodge that if they don't achieve it. So if they're part of that whole goal setting thing, then there's no reason why the goal should not have been an achievable thing for them to do. Well, now I want to ask you one more question. <laughs> you answered that one. That was going to be my last one, but if I could have one more before we kind of wrap it up. And that is, let's just say I am three months down the track and we've had a few one-on-ones and I've been struggling a bit with my time management, let's just say, and it's something that comes up over and over and over again. What do you do if something comes up over and over and over again like that? I think as a manager, I'm asking myself, have I set this person up to succeed or I failed them in that regard in terms of what I've handed them to begin with? And then if I think I've done everything I possibly can to make this portfolio a success for them, then I reflect on the discussions that we've had over the last three months, whether that process of them achieving goals and managing their work has been robust and whether the goals that they've set for themselves are achievable. And then if they have continued to not achieve goals that they've agreed that they can do, then we kind of shift, I guess, into that performance management piece. But, you know, I've always been a firm believer that if you've got to let someone go, it should never be a surprise to them. So if you've ended up in that scenario where that is the ultimate end, and we certainly obviously put everything in place to make sure that's not the case, if you have to have that discussion, it shouldn't be one that comes as a surprise to that person that you're having it with. So if the process you've been through prior to that has the appropriate amount of rigor and they've been involved and engaged in that process and agreeing that the things that you've set out are things that they can reasonably do and achieve in the time frame that they've been asked to do it and they consistently haven't achieved that, then you're kind of in that scenario of there's no point having these goals if there's no accountability and the ultimate accountability is that perhaps other roles in other industries might be more suitable for you. Yeah, and I guess there's a flip side to that. What if I'm absolutely crushing it, you know, and you decide, Sam is the employee of the year. We need to keep her happy under every circumstance. Then how would you go about making sure that that would still occur? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think the temptation with superstar performers is to continually to pile more on them. And sometimes that can have completely the opposite effect. So I've always been a big believer in people management that you need to know what makes people tick. And everyone's different in that regard. Like some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by status and achievement. Some people are motivated by balance and just being able to crush it at work, but go home and have an amazing work-life balance and be able to exercise and have a lunch break and all of those types of things. So that is the whole purpose of your one-on-one cadence is you're trying to get to the bottom of this person that I'm working with right now that I'm chatting to, what are their main drivers? And so if you have a superstar that's crushing it, having a chat about like, what are the next steps? Do you, we want to do more training? Do you want to diversify your role? Do you want to manage more properties? Do you want to do absolutely nothing different because what you're doing right now caters to your every need in life? So yeah, what I would say is don't burn out your superstars just because they're superstars. It's important to understand what drives them and make sure that they have the balance that's needed. And I've worked with enough high achieving PMs over the years to know that sometimes they can't actually help themselves. You know, If they're really crushing it, they just want to do more, 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 more. And it's not until they've past the point of sustainability that they realize they've taken on too much. So it's also something to be cognizant of as a manager that if people want to continue to do more, don't let them do more to the point of detriment and starting to come backwards. Like you need to be really focused on that tipping point and intervene and wind it back if need be. Yeah, absolutely. So 
So if you're listening to this, there's been a million great tips there from Brock. And in the upcoming issue of Elite Agent Magazine, there are some more tips on onboarding and indeed the three ingredients you need for a successful onboarding. If you're not a subscriber, you can grab a copy at eliteagent.com forward slash subscribe. And yeah, it's an amazing read this month. So thank you very much for being a contributor, Brock, and love your work. Thank you for having me. Okay, so before you go, just give us a little bit of a rundown of what's happening over at Colmeo. Well, we're kind of in the fortunate position now where I guess our baseline property management platform is at a really good point. We're starting to see more and more customers adopt that. So we're starting to move into the more fun stuff, strategic and forward-thinking things that we really wanted to bite off when we first started thinking about the Colmeo vision. So a lot more effort is now shifting towards our upcoming services marketplace and ways that we can help both owners and tenants to get everything they need through the tenancy life cycle. And that will also have a revenue generation component to it. So this is kind of the start of our journey of Colmeo being the triangle that joins all three parties, you know, really starting to focus a lot more heavily on that owner and tenant experience and making that whole piece a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, amazing. And we're looking forward to seeing you and Scott at Elite Retreat. I've been talking to Scott about his presentation, but do you have any insights there? Well, Scott is the king of the case study, so he does put in a lot of time and effort behind the scenes, making sure that the sessions that he serves up are going to be the most impactful things for the people who are in the room. So you should be in for a real treat. He's been the fortunate beneficiary, I think, of a lot of case study style learning over his many years of doing postgrad studies. So he has benefited from how effective they've been as a tool in his toolkit and seeking to kind of harness that power and make it into a really practical and relatable session for everyone there. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Well, Brock, it's been fantastic having you back on the podcast again, and I hope you'll come back again soon. If there was one thing that you'd like to leave everyone with or one thing that you hope agency directors take away from some of the things we've talked about today, what would it be? Create the time up front for people to be successful when they come into your business. So it's a lot easier to solve that issue initially than to deal with the fallout of continuing churn later. So just creating that space for people to have a conversation with an owner and a tenant when they first take on a portfolio so that the first time they need to talk to someone is not when they need something or when something's gone wrong. It's just been a neutral introductory conversation and that kind of starts that relationship off on the right foot. So it can be done really straightforward. You don't have to literally talk to everyone. You can have a well thought through voice message that you can leave behind. But having that first contact point as a relationship builder and not when there's been a problem, there's a point of conflict is a really critical point of success. So please create that time up front for people to be successful when you put them into that new role. Yeah, amazing. Brock Fisher, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast. With thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joinelitagent.com. 